Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. As we continue through the Passion Week of our Savior Jesus Christ, it was an intense Sunday through Sunday some 2,000 years ago. And in Mark chapter 12, we've got Jesus in Jerusalem, and we find ourselves on Wednesday of the Passion Week as Jesus is interacting with a, a body of men called the Sanhedrin. I want to read the passage briefly. It's a familiar passage. There's a very popular phrase in this passage that we know often, and I dare say we quote often. And this morning, I pray that your encounter with this passage and this familiar saying will will be different, and it will change the way you relate to God on this topic. Mark chapter 12, starting in 13, I'll read to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, And some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Father, I pray now that you would help me to speak plainly. Certainly that I would speak faithfully to these scriptures. And that we would all listen obediently and humbly. And I pray, Father, that we would marvel at the end of this message. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for a fleeting moment, things were as they should have been. The temple was designed by God to be his dwelling place among his people. From the Exodus days and the days in the wilderness when God had a a tent of meeting that he had set up out in the wilderness, all the way through to the, the temple that King Solomon, David's son, built, all the way to the present temple that we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 12. It's known as the second temple, the temple that was reconstructed after the Babylonian exile. Throughout all these ages, God designed it that he would dwell in the temple and it would be there that he would be worshipped and honored. It would be there that he would even teach his people. And for a fleeting moment, (laughs) for a fleeting moment during this week in the book of Mark, things are as they should be. For you see, God, on this Wednesday of the Passion Week, is in his temple. He's God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And he's in his temple holding court. But he's not being worshipped. He's teaching. He's instructing. But he's not being worshipped. If you look in your Bibles here at Mark chapters 11, 12, and 13, uh, from eleven twenty-seven all the way through the end of chapter 13, God is in the temple as he should have been. And this all happens on one occasion. 
Amazingly, it only lasts for this Wednesday of this week. Tragically, his teaching is not received. In fact, tragically, it is reviled, hated, scorned at. Yes, uh, as we looked last week at this parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus' teaching in the temple at this moment is going to get him the treatment that the son of the owner of the vineyard got when he was sent to these tenants to get the fruits of the garden. This passage this morning is given to us, and I offer this sermon to us for three reasons. Number one, I want to make sure that we are all moved to rightly appreciate what Jesus Christ endured by taking on flesh and leaving the right hand of God the Father and walking on earth for some 30, 33 years. I want us to rightly appreciate what got him killed. And I want us to celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. <laughs> I want that to be the accomplishment that we can say we've had as being together this morning. Secondly, I want to encourage some of you to maybe consider for the very first time entrusting your eternal soul to Jesus Christ. There's some here that I have no doubt, I don't know who you are, that you may not believe rightly in Jesus Christ. And it's been my prayer this week as I have prepared and meditated on this passage of Scripture that you, for the first time this morning, would say, I need to give my allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly, I want to lead us all to give more of ourselves to God as a result of what we see God giving to us. So let's jump in and let's work through this passage here in Mark. I've got four, four areas that we need to look at this morning, and the first one is this. We are presented in the Scriptures a very unholy alliance of men who have a very unholy purpose behind them. That's the first point. Look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Who are they? They sent to him. Who are they? This they, if you look in the context of Mark where we are right now, this they consists of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a body of 71 men. 71 men. 70 of them are Pharisees, uh, scribes, elders, Sadducees, and one of them is the current momentary high priest. So we've got 71 men that are the rulers, the religious rulers of the nation of Israel. They send to Jesus some Pharisees and some Herodians. And this unholy alliance is designed to trap Jesus in his talk. Now these guys, this Sanhedrin group, has hounded Jesus since he hit the scene. Not long after he was baptized, he was taken immediately, the scriptures say, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And right after that, he was tempted by these Sanhedrin members every day of his ministry life, some three, three and a half years. They planned to dismantle Jesus' influence through a line of questioning, and they want to trap him in his talk. And they want to do this before people on a Wednesday of a very, very massive week in the history of mankind. 
First, they send in our text this morning, 13 through 17, they send Pharisees and Herodians. And their design is to entrap him in his talk. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at verses 18 through 27, where they send the second wave of questioners. These guys are called Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. And lo and behold, they're going to ask Jesus about the resurrection. And then the third round, perhaps two weeks from now, we will look at the scribes who are sent in. And the scribes question Jesus all the way down through verse 40. Wave after wave, it's like they're taking off from an aircraft carrier, going and dropping their payload on Jesus and then returning. And each time they miss the mark. Each time they are unable to trap Jesus in his talk. Yeah, this is an axis of evil that the Sanhedrin has assembled on this Wednesday. This first round, it's made up of Pharisees and Herodians. Who are these two groups of people? Well, the Pharisees represent the narrow, conservative Judaism of the temple. They are faithful to a flaw to God because they added to God's law many laws. And they have built a false religion based on their own commands. But they are conservative, tightly wound, and unwavering in their devotion to God through the means that they themselves created. And God's not pleased with that. They are coupled with the Herodians. The Herodians are also Jewish men, but the Herodians are sympathetic to Herod. And they have sold their soul out to the Roman government. And they have pledged their Christian or their their Jewish allegiance to a pagan Roman government. And so they are friendly and faithful to Herod. Thus, they're called Herodians. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians could not hardly tolerate one another. They had diametrically opposed loyalties. They had diametrically opposed missions. The Pharisees are religiously motivated. The Herodians are politically motivated. The two can hardly stand one another, except they are united on one topic, and it is this. This Jesus is dangerous to our way of living. We have a common ground, a common interest, and that is that this Jesus does not continue to mess with our influence and our way of life in the nation of Israel. And so with that, they are drawn together and bound together by hatred for Jesus Christ. If you remember, and you probably don't, I get the benefit of studying all week. But back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. After Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, immediately the Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how they might destroy him. So way back early in the book of Mark, the Herodians and the Pharisees were an axis of evil intending to snuff out this dangerous Jesus Christ. So the Sanhedrin has sent this party of Pharisees and Herodians together. And I want you to know this morning that this is, no doubt, the most formidable team of interrogators that could be sent to Jesus Christ. These guys are good at their law. The 
Pharisees are good at their religious law, and the Herodians are good at their Roman law. These are expert interrogators. Jesus Christ has got his work cut out for him, perhaps. (laughs) They are bonded together by hatred for Christ, and they came to trap him in his talk. I always look, when we look at in the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I always look at what the other writers say. And here's what Matthew says about this moment. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him with his words. Mark says, trap him in his talk. Luke says this, so they watched him and sent spies. That's the Pharisees and the Herodians. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They have evil intentions because they are an axis of evil. That's point number one. Number two, this axis of evil sets a trap for Jesus. We find the trap set in verse 14. Here's what it reads, part of 15. And they came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's a gigantic snare that they've laid right in the pathway of Jesus Christ. And they've even fenced him in so that there's only one path to go and he's going to step in it one way or the other. I want you to look at the hypocrisy of what they say. And I want you to know that their hypocrisy is so true, they don't even understand how truthful they were. They say, first of all, with false flattery, truth beyond their wildest imagination. I just took for a moment and I dissected the phrases that they say to Jesus Christ. First of all, they call him teacher. Well, they don't know how true they are. This is the teacher above all teachers that ever walked on the face of the earth. They must have really hated to say that to him because he taught things against what they taught people. But nonetheless, they butter him up and in a hypocrisy with a a mask on, they say, teacher. Well, I looked for some scriptures that would substantiate the fact that Jesus Christ is a teacher. I'll give you one of them this morning. John 3, verses 1 through 2, a story about a Pharisee, Nicodemus, one of their own. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Yes, Pharisees and Herodians, he is the teacher. He is the teacher of God, and he can only teach in such a way because he is of God. He is God. Secondly, they say to him, we know that you are true. They don't know how true they were with that statement. 1 John 5.20 says this, and I'm thinking these Pharisees, by the way, are laughing at the moment that they say, we know that you're true, ha, ha, ha. Well, here's what John says in 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come to us and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Yes, Pharisees and Herodians, he is true, even though you don't believe it. They're buttering him up with these 
hypocritical sayings of false praise and acclamation. Then they say this, we know also that you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Well, that's true as well. John says in John chapter 2, 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he indeed needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That is right, Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and and Herodians. That is correct. He is not swayed by appearances, and he does not care about man's opinion. He cares about the truth of God. That's right. Lastly, they say, we know that you truly teach the way of God. Boy, they must have winced when they said that. They hated that to be true, but they butter him up nonetheless. And I would say to you, one night later, this is Wednesday during Passion Week, on Thursday night in the upper room with his disciples, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So these men, as they approach him and they begin to set the trap, they are building a fence around him and buttering him up. There are crowds listening in on this. Yeah, he's the teacher. Yeah, he's true. Yeah, he doesn't care what man thinks. He's not swayed by appearances. Yeah, he teaches the ways of God. Yes, so ask him the question because we want to see how he's going to answer. Having set him up and put the fence around him, Now they set the trap, and it's this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You're a teacher. You're true. You don't care about what men thinks. You teach the ways of God. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They ask Jesus a close-ended question question. It's yes or no. What do you think about taxes? They didn't ask that. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? It's all we want. One word from you, Jesus, teacher, man who doesn't care about man's appearances. Yes or no? No matter how Jesus answers in their minds in this moment, he's in trouble. He's in trouble. No matter how he answers, he will be in mortal trouble with one party or the other, with the Pharisees or the Herodians, either way, yes or no. Silence would be disastrous. (laughs) This is not a time to be silent. Evasive, no, that would render him weak and not worthy to be followed, which was the objective of the Herodians and the Pharisees. If he says yes, he would be viewed by the Pharisees and the Jewish people as a traitor, selling his soul to Caesar like the Herodians did. If he says no, he will be viewed as an insurrectionist by the Herodians and the Roman government. And so there is a case being built here, and there is a trial that is ready to be established. And whichever way he answers, either the religious authorities of Israel are going to try him, or the pagan authorities of Rome are going to try him, and his life is on the line at the trial. Because to be a traitor to the nation of Israel, to be a traitor of God merits death, and to be an insurrectionist against Caesar and Herod would be death as well. So there you have it. 
The trap is set. The question is asked. The crowd becomes silent, I would imagine. How's he going to answer this one? What's going to come out of his mouth? And in anticipation, all these people lean in to hear him just a little bit better. I want to hear this. I hope you're with these people at this moment because, Jesus, this is a really big question. and There's a lot at stake. What are you going to say next? So point number two, the trap is set. Point number one, it was set by an axis of evil. Point number three. Point number three is Jesus disarms the trap. And boy, does he do it so craftily, magnificently. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, (laughs) knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me deal with this, fellas. You know, they forgot to flatter him with, you know, teacher, you know, we know you speak the truth and all. They forgot to say, hey, we also know that you're omniscient because Jesus is omniscient. He knows what's going on in the hearts of man. Remember John two twenty five. he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And he reveals that right here. He knew their hypocrisy and he asks them, why do you try to entrap me, put me to the test. They must wonder now at this point with that coming out of his mouth, uh uh-oh, how's this going to go? He's on to us. He's on to our hypocrisy. He's right we were hypocrites. We don't believe anything that we said to him at this point, but we want to know the answer to his question. And uh, right now, this isn't setting up so well. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's, what's going on here? This is weird. This is strange. What a wild way to answer a very simple question. Yes or no, Jesus. A denarius was a small silver coin, and it represented in Jesus' time a day's wage. So this is one 365th of an annual salary. The denarius was called for by the Caesars to pay a poll tax, P-O-L-L tax. What's a poll tax? Doesn't have anything to do with voting at the polls. It has to do with existing. If you breathe in and out oxygen on Roman soil, you owe a tax. You owe a day's wage for your existence and the privilege to draw in Roman oxygen. So here's a poll tax that's paid every year to the Caesars. On one side of the coin is the image of Tiberius Caesar. And there's an inscription on that side of the coin in Latin. The inscription says in English, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Divine Augustus. Huh. On the back of the coin is a picture of Tiberius Caesar's mother, Livia. And it says on the back in Latin, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Huh. What might we do with that? 
So we have a coin with Tiberius Caesar's image and in his inscription, and that inscription says, Son of the Divine Augustus, and it says, Chief or High Priest. I want you to stop and consider for a moment what's going on here. This coin does not need to be taken lightly, and its inscription certainly doesn't. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is holding a coin in his hand. And on this coin is an image of a man, Tiberius Caesar, who claims to be the son of the divine Augustus. That means the God Augustus. That's blasphemous. And God in the flesh is holding such a coin. The chief high priest concept. Let's look at that. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus Christ is the priest of all priests. He's greater than Melchizedek or any of the high priests. So the true high priest, the once and for all high priest of God's people is holding a coin that says that Tiberius Caesar is the high priest. What blasphemy. What blasphemy. A faithful Jew saw the blasphemy in this. The Pharisees appreciated the blasphemy of this so much so that they didn't even possess such coins. Much less would they pay their poll taxes with this coinage. You say, well, where did they get the coin? I, I offer you the Herodians. They had sold them soul, their souls out to Herod and, and Augustus, Caesar Augustus. So they probably pulled one out of their cloaks or maybe they got one from somebody that was in the crowd. But here comes the coin and Jesus holds it in his hand. The inscription on it is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So a faithful Jew didn't even touch such a coin. Much less it had an image on it. Second commandment, you shall not have any graven images that declare themselves to be the son of God. So this is dirty money. I think the Pharisees in the moment are even stunned that Jesus Christ would hold it in his hand. The Jews, they paid their poll taxes. Don't get me wrong. They couldn't get around that. They'd be killed if they didn't. But they paid their poll taxes with Jewish shekels and copper coins that had no graven images on them or no inscriptions. But they were worth money because they were of a precious metal. So by this... When Jesus holds this coin up and says, whose image is this and whose inscription is this? By this, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching a lesson to those people at the time, and he's teaching a lesson to you and me. And here's his lesson. Human governments are legitimate. Human governments are legitimate, and there is no place for political anarchy amongst God's people. Pay the tax. That's what he says. God tells us this, Romans 13, 1 through 7. I'll paraphrase some of it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Wow. We don't like Scripture like that, do we? We need to. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, speaking of government. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Tiberius Caesar is a minister of God. Wow. Attending to this very thing. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, whose image is on this coin, whose inscription is on this coin. That's who this coin belongs to, pay the tax. Now, I want to be very clear. Jesus does not approve of Tiberius Caesar and Herod and Pilate and all the Roman government. He does not approve of their means and their ways at all. He is not affirming their goodness. But he is affirming their godness. They exist because God delegated authority to them. It was a very, very sinful government. Wow! The wickedness that the Caesars and the Herods and the Pilots practiced. Wicked. But it was established under the absolute sovereign good authority of God. For God's purposes. He is God's servant for your good. The authorities are ministers of God. Do we believe the Bible or not? Governments are a source of God's common grace. You depended on the government to even be in this room this morning. You drove on a road that had yellow paint on it, and people obeyed a solid yellow line and a dashed yellow line government put that in place. If you live in town and you turned your water on, the government provided water through pipes from a reservoir that was clean and pure. If you didn't get mugged on the way to church, we have sheriffs and police officers. You and I need God's common grace called government, even when it's wrongful in the way it does things. I will tell you that a corrupt government is better than no government at all. Can you imagine the world with no government? We want that, but we don't want that. There needs to be some governing authorities on earth with the authority of God to keep things somewhat sane. Even when we watch insanity come out of Washington, D.C. of all places. So a poorly run government is better than no government at all. And our God knows this. And God promises us that he will deal with evil, corrupt governments in the day. And we need to leave that to him and render to his delegated authoritarians what needs to be rendered to them. That's what Jesus says. In in short, he says, you pay the tax. 
Now, there are moments, I have to say this in a message like this, there are moments when we do not obey the government. When the government calls us to live against the commands and the ways of God, we do not do it. Okay? When the government calls us to go against our Christian conscience, not our pet peeve conscience, but our Christian conscience, we don't do it. We're not subject to God, to to Caesar in that way. We are subject to God through and through. We get a great example of this in Acts chapter 5. The authorities are the religious authorities of Israel with Peter and the disciples. And here's what we read in 527 of Acts. When they had brought the disciples to them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying this, We strictly charged you to teach no, no, to not teach in this name, the name of Jesus. We charged you not to do that. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and, you're inti- and you intend to bring man, this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles, apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. There will be moments when we need to say to Washington, D.C., we must obey God instead of your law. But it is not about taxes (laughs) and various other things. It is about abortion. It is about gender. And on and on and on. We must obey God on bathroom assignments. Golly, we must obey God on those. We will not succumb to the ways of man on those. But we will render taxes unto D.C. and other things. Now, all of that, there, there is a very key word. And if you've sat with me for very long, I've been here four years now, you know that I like key words in passages of Scripture. And I'm going to ask you to get your pen out, and I want you to circle a word in this passage because it is gigantic. The word is found, no less, in verse 16, I believe. It is found in in verse 16. I want you to circle the word when he says, Whose likeness, circle likeness, an inscription is this. He's holding up this coin. Whose likeness? is this. That's a very, very important word that I will camp out on for the rest of this message. (laughs) In the Greek, it's a word that you know, and I'm going to bring you some Greek today because it's a word that you use maybe daily. The Greek word here for likeness is icon. We know about icons, don't we? You have a smartphone, you live and die by icons. You have a desktop on your laptop, You live and die by icons. We click on icons to get what we really want behind the icon every 10 minutes of our life now. Jesus says, whose icon is on this coin? The one whose image is on the subject is the one who should receive the subject. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus says, you give to Caesar the coin that bears his icon because he minted it. And it is his. It represents him. He minted it under delegated authority from God. And so you give it back to him. You pay the tax. 
So how does this apply to us in 2016? This is very, very applicable to us. We live on this subject every day, every day. Obviously, we must pay our taxes to our government timely, respectfully, accurately, or bad things happen to us, right? So we are called by God to pay taxes to the government regardless of what we think about them, regardless of what we think about them. Uh, Another thing that we are to render unto Caesar, because it is his, is a vote. We're going to vote big time this November, and the stakes are tragically discouraging. (laughs) But we must render to our government a vote because that government exists under the authority of God. And so in voting, we are honoring God in speaking our mind and asking God to give us the candidate that we vote for. We especially need to vote if we don't like our taxes. (laughs) We must enroll, this one's hard, in government-required health care. It's a tax. The government has said health care is mandatory. If we don't want to do that, fine. They've got a nice penalty system. We must pay that penalty at the end of the tax year. One way or another, we are going to render unto the government of the United States of America some remuneration for health care insurance. And I don't believe in government health care at all. But I'm going to come under the authority of Caesar, and I'm going to render unto Caesar what is his, either by enrolling in coverage, which I've done, or paying the penalty in April. I don't like it. This is personal. But I will render. Because God delegated the authority to that entity. We must obey criminal and civil laws. We must acknowledge and abide by EPA standards, even when they're absolutely ludicrous. If they're the law of the land, we will do it. We must, heaven forbid, obey traffic laws. (laughs) Okay? That's getting real personal. Now I'm getting controversial. That yellow paint on the highway comes from the authority of God. Delegated to Erath County, state of Texas, federal government. You know, of all things that I preach about, none generate controversy like when I preach about the government and our relation to it. I've preached sermons on divorce, hard sermons full of grace, and I have not received as much grief from those sermons as I have from sermons on honoring the government. I want to beg you this morning, please don't write me any anonymous dirty letters this week. Please don't gossip and send messengers to me to tell me that, come talk to me, let's have coffee over this issue. I would love to look into the scriptures and see how we might rightly honor the Lord as it relates to government versus managing conflict. This is the Bible here I'm proclaiming to you. Embrace God's common grace and honor it as if honoring him. Okay. We're on this item of icon. Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. But then he says something that I really think is the focus of this passage. 
We don't need to stop with the Caesar part. We hear that quote all the time. But we really need to be people that says we need to render to God what is God's. Let's go there for the rest of this message. Let's revisit the word icon. In Hebrew, it's the word tselem. And it's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's that word, image. Jesus said, whose image is on this? Whose icon is on this? The Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, right there in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our icon is what it says. And so I want you to hear this morning from me and from God's word, more importantly, that you bear the image of God. You are made in his image and his likeness. And that's true for you whether you're a Christian or not. If you are a human being, you bear the image of God like that coin bore the image of Tiberius Caesar. Do you understand that? You belong as a human being to God. He didn't put his image in anything else when he created. No mountain range, no solar system, no animal. He only put his image in humankind. You you're his. You bear his image. What are you to do with this image? I could take you to hundreds of scriptures of what you're to do with that image. The nicest, cleanest, tightest one is 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31, where Paul says, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Boom. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you pay taxes, whether you work, whether you rest, whether you vacation, whether you play sports, whatever it is you do for the glory of God because you bear his image, you are his, and so what you do must be for him, not for you. So you bear the image of God and you must render yourself unto God, the creator and maker and owner of you. Now, this statement by Jesus renders Caesar's claim to be null and void. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, no, he's not the son of God. No, Jesus Christ is. But Jesus says, you render to this man Caesar what's his, but there's a God that you need to render what is his unto him. So Jesus took God and put him way above Tiberius Caesar, way above him. He's the Caesar for the moment only because God in his authority appointed him to be Caesar in the moment. But God is forever, forever, through Caesars, through presidents, through monarchs, kings and queens, dictators, God is forever forever. And you're to give to him what is his. He's the Caesar for the moment only because God gave him the title in the palace. And God says, he is my servant for your good. Whew. It's hard to take, but it's trustworthy because it's found in the scriptures. So Jesus's point here is you belong to God because you bear his icon. God minted you, so you give yourself 
to God. You give this little trinket to Caesar. But you give your life and everything that's in it to God. And the problem is these Pharisees, much more than the Herodians, but these Pharisees are all worked up about whether or not they should give something to some man, and they have not one concern about whether or not they're giving their lives to God. They've created laws that they give themselves to. They made those laws, so they're giving themselves to themselves. They are not at all bothered about not giving to God what is his. That's the tragedy of the moment. So let me make application of this. You are God's icon. What are you to do as God's icon? You're to render yourself unto him. So what does that look like? You must render to God your daily worship to him. You say, well, yeah, yeah. I say, no, 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 no. You listen to me. You need to render unto God daily your worship. You don't worship him and then worship work or family or recreation or hobbies. You worship one God and only one God. And so you render as his icon your worship to him alone. Yet we're tempted to worship work. Got a big payroll to meet. Got products that are expected to be in customer shelves next week. Got customer service issues. Got to service my sales to keep my business. And we, next thing you know, we're worshiping the office and the entity that we work for our own. We're not to worship there. We're to serve God there. You can render to God what is God's in the way that you work. But you can worship yourself real quick at work if you don't watch it. I I would say you need to render to God your Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are significant. Sunday mornings became significant 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ raised from the dead on a Sunday morning. That shifted everything. We left the concept of Saturday Sabbath. And the church in the book of Acts met on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, faithfully, without end. So I'm going to say this morning that for us and anybody that professes Jesus Christ as Lord, Sunday morning is God's, not ours. And yet, what are we tempted to give our Sunday mornings to? Golf, the lake with the camper, children's sports tournaments all over kingdom come, sleeping in because it's been an intense week of work, and on and on and on. Sunday mornings are so sacred, they do belong to God. It's called in the Bible the Lord's Day. That when we go on vacation, before we go, we scout it out and we say, where are we going to spend the Lord's Day? And I want to encourage you, it's great to go to Montana, Alabama, Tennessee. You go wherever you want and you do your research on the internet and find a church that proclaims the Bible and loves Jesus Christ. The coolest thing is to go worship with other people in other congregations. 
vacations need church in them because the Lord's Day is the Lord's Day 52 times a year. Do it. Give to God what is God's. Give Sunday mornings to Him. Unless you're sick and you can't go. And be in the church that you're a member of, dare I say, 48 Sundays out of the year. Spend four in other congregations on vacation or business trips or whatever. But, man, give to God as a member of one of His churches 48 Sundays. Plug in. Render to Him what is His. Your membership in your church is God's. Give it to Him. Render to God the first fruits of your earnings by tithing. So often we render to our retirement plans the first fruits of our earnings. We render to our hobbies. We've got to get the next most current set of golf clubs or the next greatest fly rod. Okay, I'm tempted there. We need to give the first fruits of our earnings to God. We don't even give to Tiberius Caesar the first fruits of our earnings because we tithe off of our gross and then comes taxes. November 15th of last year, Tony Landis and I co-led this service through an explanation of biblical giving and an application to our context here at Rocky Point Baptist Church. It's a good day of worship. And the fruit from that worship is abundant. Do you know that from that point forward, we have essentially, month after month, as a congregation, given to our budget. And we accomplished that two ways. Number one, our people, you, responded in obedience to God and gave more out of obedience. And we as a staff and elders cut costs. That's a good way for us to live together, isn't it? Staff reducing expenses, congregation worshiping authentically. And together, through that work, the Lord has allowed us to live from November to present. It's not a year to date, but from November to present with a basically a balanced budget. We're close every month. And we preached one time about that on November the 15th. Praise God for his people responding to the one-time proclamation of his word. If you've not joined your congregation in giving to God what is his, and that's the tithe, this morning I ask you, give to God what is God's so that God can work through this congregation to spread the gospel down the street and around the world. Because that's what we're doing with what God brings in here. We're not buying toys. We're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And sometimes it's right down the street. Render to God your service in his church. You know, we are a people, a culture of volunteerism, and we volunteer all over the place at work and down in the community and through parachurch organizations and on and on and on. They're all good causes. But so often you look into a church and their nursery is neglected with no volunteers. The same old people get called week after week. Why? Because the body of Christ is not rendering to God what is God's and they're worn out from volunteering for all kinds of things all over kingdom come to the neglect of God's church. We need to look at ourselves and say, am I rendering to God the things that belong to Him?
So there you have it. We've got an icon issue. Some little bitty icons by the authority of God need to be given to those that they represent. And in so doing, we're giving to God what is His because we're honoring Him in the delegation of authority that He gave down to a government. But more importantly, this passage is really about God's icon. Our soul is in the image of God. And the call this morning is not just to render to Caesar what is his and go on down the road grumbling about paying taxes. No, joyfully render the icon of God in you to God who made you. That is the point. Let's look at the response. This will be two seconds. It's an unholy response. An unholy alliance set a trap. The trap is rebuffed, and now there's an unholy response. And Mark simply says, they marveled at him. Well, I want you to know what marveling looks like in the lives of these Pharisees, because later on, actually two days later, this is Wednesday of Passion Week, on Friday of Passion Week, the Pharisees are going to go into Pilate and listen to this, Luke 23, 1. When the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now you tell me, is that true? Jesus said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They're lying here on Friday to Pontius Pilate, saying, He forbid us by paying taxes to Caesar. That's an absolute lie. They are so deranged and so against Jesus that they've, they're going to quit trying to trick him, and they're just going to bluntly and bludgingly lie their way through this thing. It's an unholy response to a godly, godly teaching. Let's don't be this way. Let's don't be this way. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When we encounter a passage such as this, we must take a serious inventory of our lives. The first question is, do I fully appreciate and embrace the truth that I am made in God's image? It starts right there. And you are made in God's image, period. There's no question on that. But do you embrace it? Do you like it? And then secondly, we need to say, okay, if I'm made in His image, am I giving myself to Him who made me? Am I doing that? You know, you need to understand we're made in God's image, but we marred God's image because we sinned. We dirtied it. And so we have passages like this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own. Boy, that's a, that's a tough verse. You, you want a controversial verse to a human being? You tell a human being, you don't belong to you. That's as controversial as I can get, isn't it? But you don't belong to you. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. We're made in God's image, but we marred God's image. And so God had to make us right with him, and he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. We need to be ransomed, bought for a price. And that price was this Jesus in Mark chapter 12 who held this coin. This Jesus would be murdered two days later. And two days after that, he'd rise from the dead. And it's through that that you are not your own. And you've been bought for a price. Do you believe that this morning? I want to urge you. I want you to bow your heads right now with me. As we get ready to close this service. There is a, a very poignant need every week to respond to the preaching of God's word. You can't come in here and sit and chew your cud and then walk out and go home and get some more food to chew on. You have got to chew on the word of God and you have got to process this and apply this to your life. Listen, I have done this all week. That's what you get when you prepare to preach. So I've already done this. I'll do it a little bit more here now, but I've been confronted by God this week. This is your moment to respond to the word of God. Do you believe that you're made in his image? And if you do believe that, does your life reflect that you are not your own, you're his, and therefore you need to give over to him yourself? In a profession of faith for the first time? Maybe so. And if you've done that, would you please come see me and talk that through? But maybe as a, as a father, I have not rendered unto you myself, which is yours. Forgive me for this. I've not given you my tithe. I've not given you my Sunday morning. I've given to my work what I should have given to you. I've given to, to my hobbies what I should have given to you. That's the kind of stuff that you need to be praying in response to a passage like this. Maybe you're unwilling to do that right now this morning. Maybe you'll soften this afternoon. I'll be praying for you if that's you. And maybe this evening you'll do what I'm asking you to do right now. Really go before the Lord and say, I am made in your image. I now devote myself to you because I am yours. Father, your word has been proclaimed. I pray, Father, that your word is being applied right now. Jesus, you paid the price. We marred the icon of God, but you made it right by paying a ransom so that we might become the righteousness of God that we were intended to be. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that price. Continue to wash us now, Lord, as we close our service of worship together and lead us away from this place worshipful for the rest of this day and the rest of this week. Bring us back together next Sunday morning for another encounter with you in your scriptures. And we pray this desperately in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.